Our scripture reading this morning is Exodus chapter 19. In the third month, on the same day of the month that the Israelites had left the land of Egypt, they entered the wilderness of Sinai. After they departed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and Israel camped there in front of the mountain. Moses went up the mountain to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain. This is what you must say to the house of Jacob and explain to the Israelites. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Now, if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although all the earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people responded together, we will do all that the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear when I speak with you and will always believe you. Then Moses reported the people's words to the Lord. And the Lord told Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. They must wash their clothes and be prepared by the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put boundaries for the people all around the mountain and say, be careful that you don't go up on the mountain or touch its base. Anyone who touches the mountain will be put to death. No hand may touch him. Instead, he will be stoned or shot with arrows. No animal or man will live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. Then Moses came down from the mountain to the people and consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. He said to the people, be prepared by the third day. Do not have sexual relations with women. On the third day, when morning came, there was thunder and lightning a thick cloud on the mountain, and a loud trumpet sound, so that all the people in the camp shuddered. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke, because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai at the top of the mountain. Then the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and he went up. The Lord directed Moses, Go down and warn the people not to break through to see the Lord, otherwise many of them will die. Even the priests who come near the Lord must purify themselves, or the Lord will break out in anger against them. But Moses responded to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai since you warned us. Put a boundary around the mountain and consider it holy. And the Lord replied to him, Go down and come back with Aaron. But the priests and the people must not break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out in anger against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. 
thank you that you have spoken to us as your people by your spirit. Now, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we return to our series uh, again in Exodus, and we've now reached Exodus 19, a kind of atrium, kind of uh, lobby, it feels like, uh, to the Ten Commandments in the, the next chapter. But it's not a chapter that we can pass over lightly. It's incredibly important, hugely significant for what is going on in the uh, account of the Exodus, God's covenant with his people, and the purpose and uh, mission of his people in the earth. In the last few weeks, in chapters 17 and 18, we've seen Christ, the rock in the wilderness, providing for Moses and the people despite their rebellion and unbelief at Meribah. We've witnessed the staff of the Lord's authority in Moses' hands that's enabled Israel to prevail against the Lord's enemies, the Amalekites, Amalek, Aaron and Hur holding up and supporting Moses and demonstrating, therefore, that the battle is the Lord's. And we've seen Jethro become a covenant member, sacrificing to the Lord, eating communion with the leaders of the people. And typifying all the Gentiles who by faith uh, would become part of the people of God. And we've seen the gracious wisdom of God in Jethro's guidance to Moses for the purpose of the Israelites transitioning from being a patriarchal clan to a nation with whom God is about to make covenant and to give his law. And so with that as the backdrop, we're coming today to consider this incident that is just immediately before God's giving of the law. And if you don't know what God's law is, or at least the summary of it, it's right there on the wall, this side and that side. There is a liturgical purpose in the display of the Ten Commandments. In fact, most churches historically uh, displayed the Ten Commandments to keep God's covenant law in front of the people. It's a reminder that we need the Lord's table uh, week by week. So there's a visible expression in the house of God of both the cross and the covenant law, law and blood. And it's good for us to be reminded of that law, and I'm sure we're going to deal with that in great detail next week. So we're considering then this passage in which the people are preparing themselves or are to be prepared for the reception of God's law. They were not to come lightly, and they were certainly not to come presumptuously into the Lord's presence. And that is crystal clear in this passage. You've got three days basically being set aside for uh, preparation. It's going to be the third day that God is going to meet with them. And there's these three days of preparation for the giving of the law. So what's it all about? Well, we're going to consider the passage under three headings. The mountain, the mediator, the mission. Everybody can remember that. The mountain, the mediator, and 
the mission. So let's start and consider for a minute the significance of the mountain. So in Scripture, I mean, most people like mountains. Uh, We like looking at mountains. Some people like climbing mountains. Uh, Mountains give us uh, a sense of awe. We think about um, security. We think about steadfastness when we look at a mountain. And so in the Bible, the mountain is frequently an image of the power, presence, and the unshakable steadfastness of the Lord. In general, that's how we think about mountains in Scripture. Mount Zion, of course, is a symbol of the very dwelling place of God. It is Mount Zion, the side of the north, the city of the great king. But think about some of those passages you're probably more familiar with, like Psalm 121. I lift my eyes toward the mountains. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. Your protector will not slumber. Indeed, the protector of Israel does not slumber or sleep. The Lord protects you. The Lord is a shelter right by your side. The sun will not strike you by day or the moon by night. The Lord will protect you from all harm. He will protect your life. The Lord will protect your coming and going both now and forever. That's what we think about when we think about the mountains. He, the hymn writer says, he hides my soul in the cleft of the rock and he covers me there with his hand. In Isaiah chapter 2, Uh, verses 1 through 4, we actually see the significance of the mountain of the Lord for all the nations. And actually, we get an echo in Isaiah 2 of Exodus 19. Listen to this. This is uh, Isaiah 2, 1 through 4. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be established at the top of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. For instruction will go out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will settle disputes among the nations and provide arbitration for many peoples. And they will turn their swords into plows and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations will not take up the sword against other nations and they will never again train for war. So we see the significance, actually, of the mountains and the hills in Scripture in terms of biblical prophecy, in terms of the presence, the power, the activity of God. And they communicate something uh, to us about that, about our security in Him as well. But in our text, this is the specific mountain range, the mountain of Sinai, and it's being set apart as temporarily as God's throne room. We can't understand this text unless we understand that, that temporarily Mount Sinai is being set apart as God's throne room from where he is going to speak and manifest his presence to the people. Now this is clearly indicated by the requirement that Moses have the mountain fenced off that a boundary is put up 
And there's a warning that people not even touch its base. You see that in two verses there. It's verse 12. Put boundaries for the people all around the mountain. And then in verse 23, specifically, so Moses, uh, but Moses responded to the Lord, the people cannot come up. Mount Sinai, since you warned us, put a boundary around the mountain and consider it holy. So the mountain is to be considered at this point temporarily as holy. Why? Because the presence of the Lord is there. And God summons Moses to the mountain of his presence, and he's told to explain to the Israelites again how God has delivered them from slavery to the Egyptians. And we have this beautiful text, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to me. Of course, God had a purpose in all of this, but that image of being carried on eagles' wings is, again, an image you get in Scripture. It's also an image you get in the Lord of the Rings. And the the ring bearer being borne by the eagles. So it's it's a marvelous image. God has delivered then this people. He's carried them on eagles' wings for a purpose. And now he's going to make covenant with them. Now, it's vital to understand the covenantal nature of everything that's taking place at the mountain. Otherwise, we cannot understand the severity of the penalties for touching the mountain. As you heard that being read, you might have thought, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? bit of fell walking. Why is that so bad? Well, this is the Lord's throne room. This is where the presence of a holy God is. It's where he's going to set the terms of his covenant and give his law. Look at this very important exchange in verses 7 and 8. After Moses came back, he summoned the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. Then all the people responded together. This is their response to the Lord. We will do all the Lord has spoken. So Moses brought the people's words back to the Lord. So this is a covenant. This is an agreement. There's two sides to this agreement. The covenant is two-sided. The terms are set by the Lord, but Israel is required to freely accept the terms or not. And their response is, we promise to keep your word. We promise to keep the law. We promise to do what the, what the Lord God is going to say to us. So there's a yes from the people. We know that yes didn't last very long. But the point of the yes here is that it points us forward. It helps us to look forward to the more important, the greater yes of the Lord Jesus Christ, the truly obedient Israelite. The truly obedient son who said, yes, Father, not my will, but yours be done. In Luke 22, 42. So what was going to transpire at the mountain was holy. It was sacred. Neither man nor animal was allowed to touch the mountain without facing death. And that speaks to us of the death penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. 
The mountain was considered holy precisely because the Lord was about to show the people his holiness and they needed to consecrate themselves, sanctify themselves, prepare themselves, confess their sins, wash their clothes, and yet stay at a distance from the mountain. After all of that, stay at a distance from the mountain. Don't approach a holy God. Don't dare break through the boundary lest God break out against you, even the priests. God was going to come to the mountain in a dense cloud so that the people could hear God speaking with Moses, but the people could not pass the boundary set up. Now, this might seem remote to us, but any king, to come before any king for centuries, for thousands of years, meant coming into the presence by invitation only. And this is still the case, right? Even when the prime minister of Britain goes to meet the queen, there's a specific protocol to go into the presence. There's a protocol for leaving the presence. You can't turn your back on the queen. That's just a human queen. Human royalty. To enter an ancient king's presence by crossing a given boundary without permission meant the death penalty. Because it was an affront, it was a presumption. It was considered a grievous presumption to the rule, the reign, the authority, the sovereignty of the king. Think, remember, the risk that Queen Esther took just to enter the presence of her own husband, Xerxes I. That was her husband. If he hadn't put his scepter out when she entered his presence without permission, she'd have been executed. Well, there's a couple of important applications here. More than a few, but I haven't got time for all of them, so we'll just deal with a couple. In Exodus 19, God is obviously making clear, first of all, that the Lord as King of kings and Lord of lords is no buttercup. He's no buttercup. Now, we're not used to this kind of thing in the modern church. We're not used to hearing about this sort of thing in the contemporary church. We want God to be all lovey-dovey and just grace and kindness and just like a sort of Aging old grandpa just wants you to be happy doing whatever you're doing. Just come and chill and hang. But his presence and covenant must be honored and respected. It must be honored and respected. And I think in our time, you know, the pendulum has swung a bit too far in the direction of dishonor and disrespect for the Lord and his presence. This isn't true simply uh, of God's people in the Older Testament. Consider these warnings in the Newer Testament. This is from Hebrews 10, 28 through 29. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and insulted the Spirit of grace? Grace. 
For we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, and again, I, I the, Lord will, the Lord, will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the New Testament. It's worse. It's more serious. To violate this covenant, Scripture says, than even what was threatened to the Israelites in the days of Moses at the mountain. Or consider Hebrews 2, 1 through 3. We must therefore pay even more attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. For if the message spoken through angels was legally binding and every transgression and disobedience received a just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It's not my words. It's the word of God. So what does Paul say, the Apostle Paul say, to the church in Corinth about the Lord's covenant? Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. So a man should examine himself. In this way, he should eat the bread and drink the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep, that is, died. In other words, God's saying, you abuse my covenant, you're sick, some of you have died. So this is not just, oh, well, Joe, that's the Older Testament. No, it's right here. It's the meaning, it's the nature of the covenant of God. It's law and blood. It's justice and mercy. For about uh, two decades now, or more, I've had the privilege to spend time in many churches in numerous parts of the world, east to west. And one of the concerning things in the west as I mentioned, is the casual, presumptuous, and at times downright disrespectful way people can treat the Lord's table and even worship in general. You go into some places and there's bean bags everywhere. And I mean, my sister-in-law even went into a place where a couple of people were making out at the back of this church. People are coming in with their coffees and getting up and grabbing donuts during whatever, ambling around. There's no sense of respect or reverence for the Lord, no sense of the dignity of the house of God. You know, when my grandparents went to church, and I'm not being legalistic, but we used to put on our good clothes. It's a mark of respect for the Lord. Now, we don't have to look like stuffed shirts, but it, it is good to think, well, we're coming into the Lord's house to be with God's people, to be in his presence. Let's, let's honor the Lord in that. You wouldn't go, if you had a meeting with the queen, if you had a meeting with a politician, a prime minister for a significant meeting, would you show up in just a scruffy old t-shirt and a pair of shorts and sandals? Well, somebody might. But what would that say about the person we were meeting? So what I'm saying is let's think about the pendulum a little bit in our culture today. 
and how far it it swung. You see, we're told in Scripture we can come boldly into God's presence through Christ because of what He's done. But it doesn't say come disrespectfully and presumptuously. It says come boldly into the presence of God because of Christ. But let's not come in disrespect. Let's come with self-examination. Paul tells us that. Let's come with a sense of joy and seriousness, with a goal of obedience and faithfulness. I find it, uh, I do find it difficult to be in some of those places. You know, um, I've been in others where during the worship, dry ice is suddenly coming out from everywhere, smoke is everywhere, lights are coming on, and people are sort of moshing down the front, and you just think, what? I, I don't understand what's going on here. That leads us to a second application. In our modern secular times, we have very little concern about sanctifying places, consecrating places, buildings, furnishings, homes, places of work. And that attitude is actually a product of secularization because for centuries, we as Christians thought about consecrated spaces. We just about, just about still have that sense with burial grounds, consecrated ground, right? You've got to jump through a lot of hoops if you're trying to build somewhere and it's a burial place. Or even if you've discovered a, a vessel on the bottom of the sea, there's rules and regulations about that. So, We do think about consecrated ground still for burial, but even that is steadily being set aside. People want to be cremated and sort of scattered all over the garden. Well, I don't want to tread on too many toes, but I've got a special gift of that. It's one of my ministries in life. It's, you know, Christians historically have been buried. Pagans were burned. And we consecrated the ground. That was the, the historic Christian practice for the most part. Ritual consecration and purification has deep biblical roots, but this desacralization of life in a secularized world means we don't think about holy people and holy places and profane places and set-aside places, evil places, holy places, but they are in the Bible. When Moses sees a burning bush and he, and he goes and he approaches the bush. God doesn't say, break out a couple of marshmallows and let's have a barbie. No, he says, remove the sandals from your feet. You're on holy ground. Some places can be blessed and other places can be under a curse. Jesus said so, Matthew chapter 10 When you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. 
So we can actually bring the blessing of the Lord into a place as his people, because we're, we're priests. We'll come to that. And we can also curse things. I was uh, in England fairly recently, and um, I actually encountered something quite unusual now. I was in this beautiful little village, and uh, there was a stunning old church. And so I thought, I'll go and have a look at the church. And to my surprise, the doors were open. Nobody was there, not a soul was there. So I thought, well, I'll go in. Stunning sanctuary, vaulted ceilings, you know how... They built churches in those days to last. It said something about what they believed about the kingdom of God. And I went in and there was not a soul there. Total silence. Had a little wander around. And I thought, this is unusual now. Because in most places now in England, they have to lock the churches. But they used to be always open like that so people could go in to pray. Now we have to lock them, bar the doors. You know why? Vandalism. Theft. When my parents were growing up in England, all the church's doors were open. You'd go in any time. Nobody there. All the utensils, all the church silver and candlesticks knocking around, they're all still there. Now, vandalism. Disrespect for places of worship. Well, the Bible and Western culture for centuries had places even cities of refuge. And to take refuge in a church was respected as a place of immunity and security. People did it for centuries because there was an honor and respect for that place where people met with the Lord and worshipped him. Now, I'm not being superstitious. We're not, uh, we're not Romanists here. But we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater any old how, any old way, any old time, any old setting when it comes to the worship of the living God. Our cultural treatment of everything as common, as unimportant, as profane is a mark of the apostasy of our culture and a disrespect of God and the places in which he's worshipped and adored. But we still do show great respect for certain places. Certain buildings. We require honor and respect for human courts. Government buildings and state property. But not the Lord. In fact, we live in a context where our own prime minister will fence off parliament as sacred space for democracy. People power. For the religion of democracy. Tread not upon the space. But you'll think nothing of 50 or 60 churches being burned down around the country. Barely a peep. So the Lord's presence is to be honored and reverenced. That's the point. What Moses is saying, what's the point of what God is saying to the people. The Lord's presence is to be honored and reverenced. There was a necessary correction, some of our attitude in the life of the church in the West. Have we overcorrected? Secondly, the mediator. That's the mountain, the mediator. 
There was an exception for crossing the boundary to the mountain of the Lord's presence, Moses and Aaron. A little later, some of the other elders and priests are allowed part way. God has always used human mediators in disclosing his word, his covenant, his presence. The kingdom of God, friends, and this is a shock to our culture too, is not an egalitarian order where everybody gets to demand whatever they want in their own way. It just isn't. The kingdom of God is a place where God insists on humility on the part of his creatures whom he loves and reverence. He resists the proud, as the Bible says, but he gives grace to the humble. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so there's this three-day period in the text that's required for being sanctified, preparing the people to humble themselves before the Lord. That's what the rituals are about. And I know that so often rituals seem increasingly meaningless to us in in modern desacralized secular culture. But the point of ritual usually is that it's reminding us of something important, the ritual of celebrating Christmas, the ritual of celebrating Easter. We have rituals of celebrating birthdays. There's all kinds of rituals in human culture. Canada Day, they're rituals. Rituals are reminding us of something important about our lives because as human beings, we're fully embodied, we're tactile. And as we do things, you know, when the, uh, the Feast of Booths, of Tabernacles, it'd go out and make a tent. Remind yourself, be reminded of God's deliverance in, from Egypt and your life in the wilderness and how your God was with you. Go camping. You know, the, the, the Christian habit of Bible camps, of going... Bible conferences, camp, going to camp, is a holdover from uh, holy days. Go on holiday. Holy day. Holiday is a holy. We call it a vacation. But it was holy days, and very often Christians would go to be together at various camps. And in some of them, you really are reminded of the Feast of Booths and the wilderness. And in others, you're, it's a little bit you know, more glamping. I prefer the glamping end myself. But that's the, that was the purpose. So don't, don't sneer at ritual. Okay, just because we're not Romanists doesn't mean that all ritual is unimportant. It's significant. It's, it, 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 it's part of all of our lives in one way or another. Right? Certain things that are a habit. You say, why do you have the creed every week? Why do we stand up to hear God's word? Why do we come to the Lord's table the way we do? Well, that habit, that, that forming habit is telling us something about God and our relationship to each other. You know, if you ran your house like some people ran the church, I mean, it would be utter chaos. You have to have rules, and there are rituals in your home, meal times, bedtimes, praying before meals, habits that form our lives, form our children, help them grow into maturity. So Moses was required as a mediator to consecrate the people because God is holy. We still can't approach God without a mediator. You understand that? Because God is holy. 
They had to wash their clothes, verse 10. They had to abstain briefly from sexual relations. Now, let me just comment on that because I think, well, is he going to touch on that one? He hasn't said anything about that yet. Well, this prohibition, this brief prohibition is actually very significant because it was to distinguish Israel and its worship from the pagan nations around them. The pagan nations all around them were f- practiced fertility cults. And all the fertility cults involved perverted sexual practices that were obligatory for worship. Because it was believed that chaotic sexual practice meant human participation in the ultimate fertility of creation itself. So there was chaotic orgiistic rituals common to the pagans because they thought that this would be rejuvenating for the earth, for the crops, for the land, for their society. It's common to all paganism, actually. Mother nature would be rejuvenated. These were the practices that they left in Egypt. And you might say to yourself, well, did they really need reminding of that at this point? Well, remember... Later, whilst Moses, the mediator, is on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God from the finger of God, what do the people do? They demand a golden calf and it says they rose up to play. That's a biblical way of saying they rose up for sexual immorality. They went back, they reverted to a fertility cult while Moses is on the mountain. So God wants to distinguish the worship of Israel. It's not a fertility cult. It's the worship of the living God. So there was an abstention for two or three days from sexual activity. Now Moses and also Aaron's mediatorial role was, as you would expect, I hope, a type. It was an anticipation of the true mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, The Lord God is a holy God, and though people might wash their clothes and confess their sins and prepare their hearts to receive the law, there's only been one person ever who could truly live by his will and obey his law fully and faithfully, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ who instills his spirit in the hearts of his people. And it's only because of Christ, our mediator, and the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit That today, we ourselves can live in accordance with his commands. That's the only way it's possible. Because we are in Christ, and he's given us of his spirit, and he's written this law into our hearts as our desire and our delight. So when the Israelites responded positively in our text, we will do all that the Lord has spoken, they manifested an inkling, a glimpse of something of the spirit of Christ who said yes to his father in the entirety of his life. So when the Lord came down on the third day, and I want you to remember that expression, on the third day when morning came. On the third day when morning came, there's thunder, there's lightning, there's a thick cloud, there's fire, there's smoke, there's a violent shaking, there's a loud trumpet sound, and the people are trembling at the foot of the mountain. I mean, terrifying experience. And Moses is summoned and told to warn the people, don't try and break through, don't try and get closer. This is to do with the holiness, that is the righteousness and the severity of God 
his justice in the face of our fallenness and our sin and our rebellion. You know, that is the way to appreciate the grace of God and the goodness of God. If you really want to appreciate the goodness, the kindness, the love, the grace of God, you have to understand first the severity of his righteousness, of his justice, of his holiness. Because of this, a mediator is required for the people and the manifestations at the mountain are used by the Lord to show the people you need a mediator. You have to accept Moses as your mediator called by God. And so God spoke to Moses out of the cloud and the people heard it. And they knew Moses is acting as our mediator. He can approach God, but only Moses and Aaron. Imagine how... The people, as they stood at the foot of the mountain, must have felt at this distance from the Lord. There were probably those among them who absolutely loved the Lord and wanted to be in the presence of God. I want to get closer, despite all of the fireworks and the fear. So near, yet so far. You see, God wanted to adopt a people for himself, but Christ had not yet atoned once for all for their sins. Hadn't happened yet. Their sacrifices, the sacrifices that they would offer in the years ahead are symbolic of the greater sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, which the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away, cannot remove sin. Scripture is clear about that. Thus, in a more glorious way, think about this. God spoke to the Lord Jesus Christ out of his glory, telling the people, remember, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. You see how God spoke to Moses out of the cloud? The Father speaks to the Lord Jesus out of his glory. This is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. Hear him. Why? So that they would believe that Christ is the eternal mediator sent by the Lord. And those who trust in Christ as mediator, we who were once far off, we've now been brought near. We come into the very presence of God in Christ as through a curtain You'll recall at the death of the Lord Jesus, the temple curtain separating the outer court from the inner court, the Holy of Holies, is rent in two. Only the priest could go in. But now, in Christ, we've been brought near. God remains holy, friends. And he still is sanctifying us. He's consecrating us through the mediator by his spirit. His character hasn't changed. He's still holy. He's still righteous. He's still just. And he's consecrating us by his spirit through the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 4, listen to this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to the confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness. 
with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help at the proper time. And so an appropriate comparison is made by the writer of Hebrews between Moses and Christ, our mediator. This is what he says. Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. So today we come not to fire and smoke, trembling, far off, but we're welcomed into the presence of the living God by Jesus Christ the righteous, the one mediator. Remember that expression I said, hold that in your mind on the third day in the morning. That remind you of anything? <laughs> on that other third day when morning came, Mary did not find fire and smoke and a shaking mountain. She found a stone rolled away and the resurrected Lord who brings us not to the foot of the mountain but the foot of the cross. And he brings the nations to the foot of the cross. Finally, we've seen the mountain, the mediator. Let's conclude with the mission. What was the purpose of all of this? What was the purpose of all of this activity, all this ritual, all of this demonstration, manifestation of God's holiness and righteousness? Well, it was for the purpose, the reason for the calling and the sanctifying of the people is the kingdom of God. The reason for all of this is the kingdom of God. And it's set forth beautifully in our text. Exodus 19, look at verses 5 through 6. Now, if you will listen to me and carefully keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although all the earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. That's the purpose. That's the reason for all of this. That we would be a kingly priesthood, a kingdom of priests. John Calvin correctly understood the significance of this in terms of the mission of Israel. And this is what he commented. He said, the nation is here called holy, not with reference to their piety or personal holiness, but as set apart from others by, by God, by special privilege. You see, we have a tendency to read texts like this and this calling, this being set apart in holiness in a very pietistic way, as though it simply has reference to my personal inner emotions. That, of course, is part of our sanctification, that our hearts, the thoughts of our hearts are cleansed 
It has much more than that. It's much more than that. It's not just my personal piety that's in view. It's about the calling of a kingdom of priests to be a holy nation. At this time, the people, when you look, they weren't personally holy. They weren't being called because they were holy. If you look at the lives of, of the people, you look at the way they behaved, and look at the way they acted in, a, in, a, in just a chapter or so, this was not a personally pious, incredibly holy people, much like us. But they were called to a purpose. They were set apart. I like what uh, the commentator de Graff says here. I'll just read it to you. He says, in adopting Israel then, he's commenting on verses 5 and 6, in adopting Israel then, God was adopting the entire earth. Therefore, in the next verse we read, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. What do priests do? The Israelites were a nation of priests and kings. Although the whole earth was subject to them, They ruled it as priests, praying for the earth and blessing it. The Israelites could only do so because the Christ lived in their midst. So it was a calling to be kingly, to be priestly in the the earth as a special calling so that God could bring in and bless the nations. The whole earth and all the nations belong to the Lord. God said so. He did not intend to forsake them. So he was going to draw the nations to himself by holding on to a small people who would be his nation of kingly priests. You're going to minister. You're going to serve. You're going to bless. You're going to pray. You're going to witness. You're going to model. You're going to example. You're going to prophesy. A cherished possession. You see, Israel didn't possess these privileges for themselves, but on behalf of the whole earth. They were to bear the covenants of promise, give prophetic witness to the nations, and be a model and example to the peoples. We see that everywhere in the Pentateuch and throughout the Older Testament scriptures. And we all know, of course, Israel failed. We know they rebelled. We know they went into captivity. We know that as a nation, they didn't recognize the Messiah when he came. The kingdom was given by our Lord to a new people, an international people scattered throughout the nations, represented in this room. Now in Christ, both Jew and Gentile, Ephesians 1, one people, he's made them one people. He's broken down the wall of partition. One new nation of priest-kings, a spiritual house with a spiritual calling to offer spiritual sacrifices. That's what Scripture says. And that you are a priest-king is made crystal clear by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, speaking to the Christian churches. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once 
you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You see, this is the eschatological people whose mission concerns the reconciliation of the nations of all things to God. And its central calling is the declaration and living out of the covenant law word, the gospel of the kingdom to the nations. As the Apostle John says in Revelation 1, 5 and 6, concerning the ruler of the kings of the earth and his people, this is what John says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, the glory and dominion are his forever and ever. Amen. So we see that the kingdom of God in Scripture, the, the, the basileia is the Greek word, cannot be conflated, it cannot be confused with either Israel, nation, national Israel, or the institutional church. Ancient Israel was called to a purpose, the kingdom of God. And now the called out people of God from all the nations, the ecclesia, the church of Jesus Christ, are called to a purpose, a purpose bigger than themselves, not just enriching our institution, getting people to join our institution, but to a purpose to be a kingly priesthood serving God in the nations to a specific end. What is that end? We don't have to guess because the Bible tells us, Revelation chapter eleven fifteen, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is why we are called to, by the Lord himself to pray as a kingdom of priests, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? on earth as it is in heaven. What is the kingdom? Well, we know it's righteousness, it's peace, it's joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom is, in Scripture, the divine order for all creation under the Lordship of Christ. See, your family can be a manifestation of the kingdom of God because it's God's order for the family under the Lord Jesus Christ. Your workplace can be a manifestation, however fallibly, however weak, of the kingdom of God under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The church can be, although you walk down the street, not all of them, can be a manifestation of the kingdom of God under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and we have a particular and peculiar and special calling as a light to the nations, to preach the word, to minister as priest the sacraments, to introduce people to King Jesus. Its origin, its power, its authority are not from this world, but it's God's will that it be manifest in this world. That's why Jesus came preaching the gospel of the kingdom. It's rather wearisome to listen to even some pastors say, well, my, my kingdom is not of this world, so don't worry about it. 
That's not what the Bible is saying. His kingdom is very much in the world. Its power, its authority is not from this world. It's from King Jesus, who is Lord. And so he calls the lives of his people to be transformed into the kingdom of God, and that's the meaning of the Great Commission. Let me offer you one final citation before I close with a final comment. In his very interesting book, Disciple the Nations, Stephen Perk says this about the mission. Listen closely. The word kingdom is a political word. A kingdom has a king. It has a population that is subject to the king. It has its own laws and social forms that embody and incarnate the law of the king in the various social relationships. A kingdom is a political arrangement of all parts of society as a distinctive social order at all levels, both individually and corporately. It is the same with the kingdom of God. And the Bible makes clear how the kingdom of God is to be governed and ordered, namely by means of the covenant that God has established with his people as their Lord and Savior. God always relates to man by means of covenant. And it is in the covenant that we find the details of how this kingdom is to be manifested as a distinctive social order, how God's people are to live as the kingdom of God. We're going to hear about that next week because that's what God delivers to them. We're going to learn about the covenant law of the king and what God requires of the social relationships. So as believers today, we have been called out of sin and unbelief and the kingdom of darkness into a new order for all of life, the kingdom of God. And we now declare and we incarnate the reality of the kingdom as a prophetic social order to all the nations, discipling nations in terms of the word of God. And nothing in your life or mine can take priority over the kingdom of God. Nothing. Nothing matters but the kingdom. But because of the kingdom, everything matters. Nothing matters but the kingdom. But because of the kingdom, everything matters. Nothing must take priority over the kingdom, not even the institutional church of whatever stripe. It exists to the purpose of the kingdom of God. So let's go out in faith and hope this week and joy in terms of that kingdom mission. And we do so via the Lord's table right now. We come by the cross through the covenant meal, the covenant meal of the king, And we thank God that we don't come today to fire and smoke and a shaking mountain, but to bread and wine that signify you and I are members of the covenant people and we are kingly priests unto God. So let's come to his table now.